We're going to continue teaching on the sacrament of marriage. And I have a few PowerPoints here, but a lot of notes I want to go through. And the more I study this, the more I realize we need to cover it and talk about it regularly. I would almost, I don't know how we'll handle it, but just as we teach on tithes and offerings every service for a couple minutes, and it keeps this church very prosperous and very, hopefully, keeps you budgeted. If you're still in debt after me pastoring 16 years and you being with me the whole time, I'm not sure anybody can help you. But just like we teach on tithes and offerings for five to six minutes every service and it keeps our finances blessed, maybe every service that we have couples to lay hands on uh, for anniversary, we take a few moments and we teach on marriage. Our present generation doesn't understand what marriage is at all. And it really is a shame because this is the Christian nation and marriage is a God-ordained construct, first through the Jews and then Christ came and begat the church and now we're under Christianity. And it would really be a shame for God's people who represent God, who claim to love God and know God to have the worst divorce rate in the world. But it seems to be that way. And oh, the sick, perverse irony. We can't blame the scriptures because they give us the words of eternal life. We have to blame the mediocrity of the culture. And that's what we're facing. And I don't know if we'll teach this again next week, but maybe we will. We'll see how this comes out today. But we've been teaching on the sacraments and we came upon the sacrament of marriage. But let me also say this to warm us up. And we may go a little long this morning. We have a guest minister with us who's singing, and we have communion this morning, or we did have communion, or we don't have communion. Communion was, okay. I thought maybe because the little off of the uh, slide projector had a cup. Yeah, th- All right. You guys are confusing me. I'm still a little jet lagged, and I've been in and out of town two more times this week since I got back from Africa. So I don't even know what church this is, really. <laughs> I re- there's a few friendly faces. Did you abandon my church and come to this church? All right, so we don't have communion. So I can go as long as I want to this morning. Fine. Amen. We'll see how you feel about that in 20 minutes. So I was thinking about this. When I worked at the zinc mine, uh, probably my favorite job outside of pastoring, but when I worked at the zinc mine, we had daily safety meetings. Every day before we went underground, they took 15 to 20 minutes to teach safety protocols. And what they were doing was basically discipling us. It's also called propaganda. It's also called brainwashing. But it's all the same. It's instilling in you faith by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. And every day we heard the same thing. And it was always this. You are the softest thing underground. Everything underground will kill you in a moment's notice and not even apologize to you. From the massive voltage lines that look like something Jaws would have bitten into in the movies to the equipment that had tires taller than this post here, and that was as tall as the back, and those tires would squish you and not even know, to giant slabs of rock that could fall out of the back. That's what we call the ceiling. That's just mining terminology. Slabs of rock that could fall out without you knowing, and they'd never find you. In fact, that happened in the zinc mine in the 70s. When you would go underground, you tag out so they know that you're underground. You have your name tag, and you have a tag, and you tag out. And when you come up before you go home, you tag in. So then the security officer, the safety officer can review to make sure there's nobody underground missing. You also have a matching tag on your belt. Everything's made out of brass so you don't spark. And it's also your tag is labeled. So should your body burn alive, 
they know exactly whose corpse this is. It's wonderful things. And this is where you go and make a living. So back in the 70s, apparently some guy never tagged out. So sometimes that happens. You think, well, maybe he forgot because that does happen. And they went searching for him and they couldn't find him anywhere until they realized a slab of rock had fallen out, a slab of rock as big as one section of chairs here. And there was nothing left but mush and jeans. Every day we heard the same safety spiel. And every day we also had to fill out safety cards and do acts of safety to keep us constantly hot concerning safety because if there was ever an accident or, God forbid, a death, IMSHA, Mine Health and Safety, Mine Safety Health Administration would come in, shut us down, and we're working on a commodity-based market with a very thin profit margin, so we can't stop production even if Billy Bob dies. So we don't want Billy Bob to die, not because life isn't precious, but because there is money to make and pay back to the investors. We heard it every day, and it kept us safe. And maybe we need to hear about the dangers against our marriage regularly so we stay hot concerning our marriage. Faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing. And especially for you singles who really, I apologize, my generation, our culture has not taught you what marriage is. You see it as a resolution to loneliness and lust, and that's not why we get married. Marriage never fixes loneliness. Marriage never fixes lust. You can be a porn addict and, and be married, and you can be lonely in a marriage. So unfortunately, we have failed to teach the young generation what marriage is all about. It's still a social construct. It's still a social movement. So people still want it, but they just don't know why they should. Therefore, their motives and intentions aren't always 100% accurate. And when you go into something with impure, unbiblical motives, even if it's just mixed a little bit, it's going to probably be more towards the failure department than it is the success department. So the other thing I was thinking about in preparing this sermon is talking about understanding the value of what you have in your marriage. If you don't realize that your spouse is a rare commodity and a wonderful thing, then you're going to mistreat them. And we've all been guilty of that. So I, I've taught this before, shared the story. Um, back in college, one of my friends, Willie B., Will Hutchinson, gave me his grandfather's Timex uh, manual wine watch. It looked totally 1950s. Turned out it was about 1959 model. And it was cool. It had one of these elastic metal bands and oyster shell. And it's just very vintage looking. And I liked it. Uh, it was waterproof. So I backpacked with it. I went caving with it. I swam laps with it. I wore it regularly for many, many years. Um, it got scratched up quite a bit because I did dumb things with it because it's a Timex. So when we were first married, Amanda and I, we were at uh, a restaurant and uh, the server, the manager, came and brought us our food, and he stopped and said, Oh, wow, I love your watch. Was that your dad's? No, no, that has to, you're not old enough. That has to be your grandfather's watch. Well, you don't see that watch anymore. And I could perceive in that moment he instantly knew way more about what I had than I did. That often describes your spouse. Somebody else often appreciates what you have way more than you do. So I said to him, sir, I perceive you know something about this watch. Would you care to inform me? He said, well, sure. He said, that's about a 1958, 1959 Timex. He said, that movement inside the watch, that just means the engine, the guts, he said, that's as fine as any Swiss timepiece of its decade. And he said, that'll have 21 authentic ruby jewel movements. And he said, and the funny thing is, because it was Timex and Japanese made, they were cheaply made or for low at cost, but they're as good as anything that ever came out of Switzerland. And because they were so cheap, people threw them away. 
Now by that alone, what you have is a very rare, very pricely, pricey commodity. And just by this stranger appreciating what I had more than I did, my value or my worth in my heart for the watch went through the roof. It no longer went underground with me caving. Kind of like you should no longer drag your spouse through the mud. I no longer went backpacking with it. It now became a dress watch. And uh, it had a cracked face. And so about four years ago, I sent it off to a high-end uh, re repair company to repair it. And they did. They replaced the face or the glass. They did not get the gears right. So unfortunately, I can't set the time. I can only wind it. So I got to find a better repairer. And I will be willing to pay whatever it takes to repair it because it is a priceless watch that if you were to Google it today, you wouldn't be able to find it anywhere. That's how rare the watch is. In having it for 25, 30 years, I have Googled it once. I've Googled it many times. I've only found it once. Then you Google it again and it's gone. That's how rare the watch is. But had I not been taught what I had, I would not appreciate it. A couple, 15 or so years ago, we were robbed by a bunch of white meth heads over here off of Stephen Street. And they stole every watch I had except for that one because I was wearing it. They, they robbed us at church while we were at church. My birthday. It's a wonderful birthday gift. And they took a bunch of nice watches, but not that one. And I really didn't care about the other watches because that one could not be replaced, and neither can your spouse. So you got to understand the danger that we're in and also the rarity of what you have. Because I would say probably most of you in here who are married, you didn't even realize what you were doing. You got married because society says you do it. And that's a problem. Therefore, as our culture's value of marriage degenerates, so does ours. And we see marriage as a source of happiness, which it should be, but it won't always be. And therefore, if I'm not happy, I dispose of my marriage because my happiness is my God. And unfortunately, that's a shallow American perspective. So we hit upon this concept of the sacrament of marriage. And we, as in teaching on the sacraments, we said the word sacrament comes from the Latin sacramentus, which is the Latin equivalent of the Greek mysterion or mystery. Mysteries or sacraments are spoken of 27 times in the New Testament. That is the word, the mystery. Sacraments are rituals that reflect some of the New Testament's mysteries. And I do honestly love the Catholic definition, which we've given every time, so bear with me because you need to hear it again and again. A sacrament is a ritual that symbolizes a spiritual truth. And in fact, the Catholic definition, and I appreciate this, a sacrament is a ritual that actualizes what it symbolizes. We would say it this way, a sacrament makes the symbolized power available to the believer. No sacrament, no power. No sacrament, no power. The Catholics also refer to sacraments as a time of celebration. They celebrate sacraments. They don't commit them. They don't practice them. They celebrate them. So if we were to have communion this morning, they would call it the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. They call communion the Holy Eucharist. Eucharist is the Greek word thanksgiving. And I really like the idea that the Lord's communion table is a table of thanksgiving. Paul even called it as much, this cup of thanksgiving, this blessing cup. So seven sacraments of the ancient church. The modern evangelical Protestant church only acknowledges two at most three. But the Catholics recognize baptism, which we do. That is a ritual that makes power available. They recognize communion. We do. And that symbolizes communion with the Lord. They, they call it the, 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 the real presence of Christ. 
Uh, they believe Christ is present in those elements. We don't believe that. But their arguments are pretty sound, and if it weren't for, I don't know, I don't want to say common sense because I don't want to mock faith, but I don't truly believe in transubstantiation, but they do, and they have the reasons for believing it, and they say, don't you believe in the miraculous? And we charismatics would say, well, just not here, and so we're not getting into that, but understand, we believe in communion. We know it makes power available because if you do it unworthily, you eat to yourself condemnation, death, premature sickness or, or uh, premature death, sickness, and weakness. So obviously there's power available when you take communion. They also recognize uh, penance or reconciliation, and that is, honestly, that's a ritual we ought to practice every day. We say, Father, forgive me. But it's a ritual that if we don't commit, no power is made available. If you don't confess your sins, you can't receive reconciliation. And so we don't go to a priest for it. We go to the priest. Jesus Christ. And there are times we go to one another. Please forgive me. We should be really good at going to our spouses and our children. If you're not good at repenting to your children, you're not a good parent. Because if your children are born again, they're your brother or sister in Christ. They just happen to be a younger brother or sister in Christ. And if you sin against them, you owe them an apology. And if we apologize to them, then we receive powers made available. We receive reconciliation. The Catholics also look at confirmation, which is what we would call being born again. They see it as a ritual where you go through and you confirm that this is my faith. And then ordination, we practice that as a ritual, as a, as a sacrament. We understand that if we don't lay hands on somebody, there is no ordination. There's no power. There's no vestment. There is no ordination. There is no transfer of the anointing. Just like we see it in the Old Testament with Elijah and Elisha and the anointing oil over Aaron and the priests. That's an ordination service. No ordination no fulfillment of ministry. Even in, in our ordination, my wife and I, Marlon and Miss Mary laid hands on us in the very beginning, and they ordained us into the ministry, and we became the pastors. And a year later, Dr. Barclay, who didn't know us from anybody, called us up out in a meeting, and he said, the Lord told me to anoint you from the office of prophet for the things that were lacking at your original ordination. And, and truth be told, the powers that ordained us weren't really fully above us. So he anointed us and then, then became our pastors not long after that. Anointing the sick, that's a, we charismatics, we love that. James 5, call for the elders, let them anoint the, oil, anoint the sick with oil. And then marriage, uh, we would also say the wedding ceremony. This is probably the most profound of all the sacraments because when you stand in the presence of God and his holy people in the house of God, we lay hands, we pray, we make a pronouncement and two single people now step into the ordained office of husband and wife. In a sense, it's an ordination service. We ordain them now to be husband, and we ordain them now to be a wife, which they weren't before, and we do it with the authorization of God Almighty. This is important because we're living in a day where Christians want to elope, and I want to tell you eloping is sin. Eloping is selfish. Eloping saves mom and dad money, but eloping dishonors God. I do not support eloping. I will not support you if you want to elope. I will preach against your eloping. It mocks God. We're to do it in the presence of God and his people. We should honor the God who gave it to us and the people who will be praying for us and picking up the pieces of our dysfunctional marriage. We should at least honor them. Why would you elope anyway except you're rebellious and you have sin? Why would you not want the rest of us to celebrate in holy matrimony? 
So marriage uh, is the truest sacrament of the Bible because Ephesians 5, and actually, uh, I'm going to read it to you out of the New Living Translation. So if you want to write this verse down, Ephesians 5, 31. I'm going to give it to you in the New Living Translation. I like how this reads. Verse 31, as the scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery. Marriage, that is the word sacrament there, or mysterion. Marriage is a great mystery. The only other great mystery in the New Testament is great is the mystery of holiness, and that speaks of Christ's incarnation. Now, pause for a second. The New Testament speaks of two great mysteries. The one is God becoming flesh, being preached of men, seen of angels. Great is the mystery of holiness. The other great mystery is husbands and wives in holy matrimony. Now, it's pretty wild to think marriage is equated with the incarnation of Christ. We treat it like a, a solution for my horniness. We treat it like a way to keep up with my sorority sisters. The Bible calls it an equal mystery to the incarnation of God Almighty. And we just get mad at each other and cuss each other and yell at each other and want to divorce each other because you know what? It'll make my life easier. Church, I want you to please, please recognize that as Americans, and I know we have internationals here, the American understanding of marriage is so dishonorable, so unbiblical, so low, so common, so cheap, so profane. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. We need to do our best, and, and maybe it's going to fall to me to teach on this more and more. May, I even thought maybe I need to write a book about this, which would be another long project. But I don't see, I see how to fix marriages. I, I'm sorry, I see books, how to fix marriages, how to renew romance, how to rekindle friendship, how to have intimate fellowship, uh, not even talking sexual fellowship, just intimate friendship. I'm not saying anything precursor to that, like how to recognize what marriage really is in light of scripture and church tradition and not postmodern social media, Pornhub, OnlyFans edition. And maybe we need a book like that. Maybe we need to be taught that. Maybe that'll save the church from having a 51% divorce rate. Amen. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. That's why it's a great mystery. So great mystery number one, God becomes flesh. Great mystery number two reflects Christ and the church. And we just treat it like it's all about my loneliness, my lustiness, and you know what? My biological clock is ticking, and I want to have babies. Who do you want to have them with? Just any schmo? You want to have them with a fat gamer who won't be there to help father the child once he has sired it? There's a big difference between fathering and siring. What do you? We have to respect this in a much greater way. Verse 33, so again I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So there's two commands there for the marriage. We men must love our wives as Christ loves the church, but women must respect their husbands. 
And you can make all your lame arguments you want, but there's going to be something to respect about him. You married him in the first place, so it may be hard to come by, but find something to first grow your respect on. Amen. 51% divorce rate in the church. Surely somebody was saying, don't marry this guy, don't marry this girl, don't marry this guy, don't marry this girl. But when people get in love, they get stupid. Hormones rage and hearts get attached and people begin to justify stuff they condemned six months earlier because love is in the air and eyes go blind. And not only do eyes go blind, ears go deaf. And you can't hear the people that love you the most. Amen. We have observed people totally reject the church that raised them for 30 years and fall in love and go dumb for some guy they met three months ago. Some schmuck you don't even know. You don't even know his middle name. You don't even know his favorite vegetable when he was eight years old. And you're going to deny Christ, change doctrine, and leave your church family because you're a broken young woman. So we have to have greater respect for this. <clears throat> the American church has lost the sacredness of holy matrimony. Modern Christians spend more time preparing for the ceremony, because after all, it has to look good on Instagram, than they do preparing their souls for the marriage covenant. We have lost the gravity of marriage. We've allowed our culture to cheapen the covenant. We get married because, number one, maybe it's expected of us by family. We get married because I don't want to be 30 and single. We get married because I don't want to be alone. We get married because I'm lusty. We get married because I may never find another person to like me. We get married because I want to have babies. We get married because I want to be liked on social media. Do we ever stop to ask ourselves, am I getting married because it's going to glorify my God? We've been married 16 years. I don't know if when we were courting, my thought was, is this for the glory of God? Now, I, I, pat, I tapped the brakes for about two and a half, three years in dating Miss Manda because I wanted to make sure it was the will of God. So maybe by default, I wanted to make sure God was glorified. But are we pursuing, single folks, are you pursuing marriage because God needs to be glorified? Or are you pursuing marriage because of a social construct and a pressure around you? Who made marriage? God. Who ordained it for you? God. Why is he omitted from the equation? Truth be told, most Christians don't get married for the glory of God. They get married for the satisfying of self. And then they expect a pastor to fix their marriage. They expect elders to meet with them God-awful hours. And if we don't agree to those terms, we're called unloving. <laughs> You're quiet already. If we cheapen marriage, then we'll treat it as cheap. If we honor and value marriage, though, we will treat our marriages as sacred and worthy. To the average American, the marriage covenant is disposable. One of the things I like about some of the African cultures, I can't attest to all of them, they do give bride prices. And if you want to marry a woman, you go to her husband, excuse me, her father, and you say, how much for your daughter? I want her hand in marriage. And he'll negotiate 20 cows, five garments of clothing, and one 50cc motorcycle. Really. 
So they go and get married. If there's a marriage problem and she wants to quit, he'll say, "Uh uh-uh, go work this out because if you come back, I have to give it all back and half of it's already gone. And I'm not taking you back, honey, because I'm not buying another 10 cows. We don't see things like that. We're so instant, 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 instant pleasure, instant lust, instant satisfaction, instant happiness, instant uh, dissolution of marriage, instant annulment, instant, instant. And we rush into it instantly. We're not willing to invest in anything long term. And again, I've never been bit harder than by some of you single folks when you're horny and in love and lusty and you think I'm being controlling and a jerk. But God calls you sheep on purpose because sheep are stupid creatures. The dumbest on planet Earth. Insects are smarter than sheep. Moths are smarter than sheep. Amen. You can teach a frog to do stuff you can't teach sheep to do. And God just calls his people, my little sheep. So let me show you a slideshow here. Divorce rates among religious people in the Christian nation, America. So we looked at this, but a couple weeks ago, I put it in order. So we're the Christian nation. We're built on Christianity, regardless of what the woke academics say. We are a Christian nation, at least we used to be. So who should have the highest divorce rate in this nation? Should be the pagans, right? Wicca pagans have a 1% divorce rate. Now, there might be explanations for this, like maybe they don't get married a lot. You know, maybe that naked sex under a tree with a dream dream catcher is enough for them, but maybe when they do fall in love, it's forever. But still statistics, only 1% of pagans, Wicca, Wicca and pagans have a get divorced. The atheist, 2% divorce rate. Doesn't even believe in God, knows how to work marriage better. Hindus, well, maybe they stick together because they got a billion gods helping them. And they got that one with nine arms just hugging them and stick, stick together, stick it out. You make this work. It's all just hug. Sikhs, Sikhism, 6%. Those are the ones with the turbans. They're not Muslims. If there's ever a Muslim holy war, find a Sikh because Sikhs don't like Muslims. They're antagonistic towards each other. Sikhism developed to fight Islam. So you get into those in Kashmir in the western province of India. Sikhs, they worship the ten gurus, but they only have a 6% divorce rate. Islam, 8%. We haven't even hit churches yet. Why do Muslims have a lower divorce rate than the Christian church? You could say Sharia law. You could say oppression of women. Sure. But I honestly, all the Muslims I've ever talked with, I respected and learned something about God from them. Not my God, but God in general. Jewish. The Jews have a 9% divorce rate, and they have a very liberal divorce policy. Jesus had to come and correct it and tighten it up in Matthew chapter 5. Mormons. We haven't hit Christians yet, and this is America. 9% divorce rate among the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Jehovah's Witnesses, the J-dubs. 
They don't just knock on doors. They knock on the door of a lady's heart and they <laughs> stay committed. 9%. Orthodox Christian. You know, the ones we make fun of because they're so legalistic with, uh, what do they have? Their um, iconography, their icons and their palpable hats and their, you know, orthodoxy. They're just so religious and stiff and starchy. I would love somebody to do a survey of word of faith. Charismatic. Buddhists. <laughs> I'm ashamed to be a Christian right now in the Christian nation. The one, the only nation in human history birthed on the gospel. And these are our stats. This is a Pew poll, by the way. Pew. Catholics, 19%. Born-agains, 33%. One in three born-again Christian marriages ends in divorce. One in three. And we're the ones who have Ephesians 5 written to us. And we're the ones who know about the revelation and the bride of the Lamb. And we're the ones that know about loving your wife as Christ does the church. And yet, one in three of our marriages, we just can't stand each other because we're actually truthfully more American than we are born again. And America's God is convenience and comfort and pleasure. And you want to get divorced because you had a spat. I'm glad God doesn't believe in divorcing us that easily. Protestant, 51%. My only, my only, I don't know, conjecture or my only frustration with this poll is they're not distinguishing between born-agains and Protestants because to me, born-agains are Protestants, though maybe not every Protestant is truly born-again. So it really isn't how you ask the questions, but that's the nature of statistics. But we can see in this Christian nation, the church is the worst at marriage. The church is the worst at marriage, specifically born-again non-Catholics. We are the worst at marriage. But then again, we don't honor marriage as a sacrament like the Catholics and the Orthodox do. Because we're free. We're not under any laws, you know. Oh, no, we're not under any laws. So we commit adultery because we're not under laws. We quit. We break covenant. We're truce breakers because we're not under any laws or so we think. Engrafted word church current stats. This is where the pastor in me comes out. See how awesome we are. A lot of times we get accused of thinking we're better than everybody else in town. You guys know how much I nail us. I pastor us. I know we're not better than anybody in town. We have approximately 250 members and maybe another 30 folks that float in the peripheral. So whatever, 250. Approximately 100 children under 18. That means 150 adults. We've had eight divorces in this church in my 16 years of pastoring. Every two years, somebody gets divorced. We currently have three divorces right now ongoing. We have 47 marriages currently in the church. So that is, what, uh, 94? 94 people in 47 marriages. All right, so that means there's about 60 singles or so in our church. Old folks, young folks, etc., high school, our college kids. 47 marriages. Here's where I kick us in the gut. And this is me not polling you, but just reading through our church roster, knowing your life story because I passed you and I pray for you and I love you. So I could be missing numbers here. 47 marriages, 31 divorces represented. 
47 marriages, but in those 47 marriages, there are 31 divorces that have been brought into the existing marriage. And we're a spirit-filled, tongue-talking, word of faith, holy rolling, charismatic, we got better doctrine and authority than anybody else on the block, church. So what's that percentage? 63%. So our divorce rate is worse than the national average. And our young lusty folks think I'm mean and controlling when I look at them and say, you don't need to pursue him. You don't need to chase her. God has better for you. It ain't them. God will have somebody better for them, but it ain't you. Oh, you're just mean and controlling. and You're just standing in the way of me and my, your what? Future divorce? Awfully quiet. <laughs> Remember, we're the Christians. We're the born again ones. We have the word of God. We have authority. We're led by the Holy Ghost. We have the best doctrine. We have dominion over what? Can't even keep your marriage together. Can't even keep your flesh under. Can't even be led by the Holy Spirit courting that thing like you're in rut. Oh, there we go. We'll come to this in a moment. We need to redeem the value and sacredness of marriage beginning with our intentions. If our intentions for marriage aren't right, we'll be launching with a couple degrees off our target. So those that are single, you need to be evaluating, why do you want to be married? Why, why, why? Once our intentions are nailed down, we need to make sure our pursuit is accurate. Then our engagement, then our actual marriage. The ceremony, our wedding ceremony itself, should be the least significant aspect of the total process. The wedding ceremony itself should be the least significant, the least time given, the least money spent. Because you can have a Kardashian wedding and drop a million dollars and be divorced 30 days later. Or you can have a humble, modest wedding with everybody in attendance and just a couple candles, and we just clear things out. You don't have to drop 20 grand to have a worthy wedding. I know it's an important day, but why spend more time on the wedding than you actually do your own soul's preparation? Because the marriage counseling is going to be more expensive than the wedding was. And then the divorce, oh, baby. Whew. And then the therapy for your kids who are now torn apart from their mom and their dad. And by that, I mean we should spend more time daydreaming about how we're going to grow up in Christ to prepare ourselves for marriage. More time doing that than we do daydreaming about the ceremony or the honeymoon naked night. Why don't we daydream about how to get better as a Christian in preparation? Jewish tradition developed to keep God's word honored and their betrothal was way more elaborate than ours. And I'm not saying we're going to make any adjustments to be more Jewish. So please just hear me on that. But I want us to hear their heart about the severity with which they entered into these agreements. Because the Jews have a 9% divorce rate. And they don't even have the Holy Spirit. How is it those in whom God dwells has a 51% divorce rate? 
How is it that those in whom God dwells, you and I know as charismatics, we don't believe every Catholic's born again. You don't even know what Greek Orthodox is. You know, we look at the other denominations, they don't have the Holy Spirit like we do. Okay, so we have the Holy Spirit. Why do we have a 51% divorce rate? Why does this church have a 60 plus percent divorce rate? And we have the Holy Ghost more than the Baptists do? Oh yeah, more to grieve him with. Under Jewish tradition, the fiance or the betrothed would be consecrated three different ways. When they got engaged, they didn't call it getting engaged. They called it being consecrated because now they were both set apart only for each other. So we would call it an engagement. The Bible calls it a betrothal or an espousal, and it was just as legally binding as a wedding ceremony. That's how serious it was. There were three ways that he developed through the rabbinical era from the time of Ezra to the time of Christ. I'm not saying we need to practice these, though we see a pattern of it. One was to pray the, pay the bride price or say, with this price, I consecrate you to me. Basically, I'm going to buy you. Now, the Jewish law required her consent. She couldn't, there was no prearranged marriages. She had to consent. And if she agreed, then he would pay that price. And now he would go to prepare a place, like Jesus said, that where I am, you may be also. That's why we know the coming of the Lord is like the coming of the bridegroom. We don't know when he's going to come, but he's going to come for us, that where he is, we'll go be with him. He's gone to prepare a place. In my father's house, there are many abodes, many dwellings. We use the word mansions from the King James, but the word mansion in the 1980s feels like Dallas. But the word in the Greek is abodes because that's what a fiance would do. He would go to his father's house and prepare a side abode for his bride, his spouse, his betrothed. And Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many abodes, meaning there's room for everybody when I come back for you. So quit talking about your mansion in heaven. It's bad doctrine. It's birthed out of the 1960s. Plus, it's a French word, mansion, which just means dwelling place. And I have a mansion. It's a double wide. <laughs> and we still go wee-wee out back in the porta pot the second way you could betroth or espouse is through a contract. And you would say, I want to betroth you. Here's our contract. It's my commitment. It's binding. We see a similar thing today with marriage licensing, just like we see a similar thing with engagement rings. And I believe if you're going to do an engagement ring, it ought to be expensive. You ought to save up. You ought to cool your jets, dude, and save up. Buy her something nice so she realizes you mean business. Don't buy her some little cubic zirconium off the flea market. <laughs> Honestly, God gave us the Holy Ghost. That was his betrothal to us. He didn't give us some janky, unclean spirit he picked up out of the shambles. He gave us the best. Amen. Amen. And that contract says, I'm going to return for you. So she had it. She had his word. The third way, and this is very foreign and hard for us, but this is a Jewish Talmudic rabbinic tradition, he could declare his intention and then have intercourse with her. But that was to say, I'm committed to you. That was the same under the uh, Talmudic tradition as a bride price or a contract. But he doesn't get to keep milking the cow. He cannot touch her again until he comes back and makes her his wife. 
If he does, he'll be stoned or whipped with what are called the lashes of rebellion because now it's fornication. We, we follow a similar pattern today in the Christian West. We have an engagement ring. We get married. We have a contract, and then we consummate. We follow a very similar pattern, but I want you to understand how serious this was to them. Their engagement was a serious thing. They did not take it lightly. And once he gave his word, he was espoused. And the only way to break off is a divorce. We see this with Mary and Joseph. When Mary was espoused to be married to Joseph and she was found with child, he being a just man sought to put her away privately. That word is divorce. He was espoused to her. They were under contract. They were as good as married. They just hadn't come together yet. He's going to divorce her. He being a just man was going to divorce her. There are causes for just divorce. The Bible called him a just man, and he was going to divorce her. But the angel said, this is of the Holy Ghost. Don't put her away. She's great with child, and his name shall be called Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. There is a blessing in engagement, and even the Jews have a special prayer. They pray over their engagement or their betrothal. And this prayer acknowledges the sacredness and consecration of the engagement. In the Talmudic law, this is not the Old Testament, but Talmudic law, uh, this is their tradition. If this prayer is not prayed over their betrothal, it's not official. And I'm just teaching you this so you know how sacred the Jews make it. We in the West, we play the field till we're ready to settle down. We maybe bring seven or eight women to our wedding in our heart, or maybe three or four guys to our wedding in our heart. And it's a flesh fest, and we wonder why it's rocky after six months. And I will remind you, dating is a strictly Western construct of the last 80 years. Dating is a strictly Western construct. Dating is a strictly Western construct that society came up with around about the time of World War I, World War II. And we just take it as normal. And I'm not saying we don't date. I'm just saying let's not cheapen any of this. So here's the Talmudic prayer over the engagement, the betrothal, the espousal. You give her the bride price or the contract. This is what they would pray. Blessed are you, God, our Lord, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and separated us from illicit relationships, who has forbidden the consecrated fiancé to us and permitted to us those who are married by the rites of the hupa and the kiddushin. Hupa is this, uh, that thing, canopy, thank you. And the kedushin is the act of engagement that we just talked about. So you've permitted to us those who are married by the rites of the hupa and the kiddushin. Blessed are you, God, who sanctifies Israel. So I like how this blessing says you have prevented us from entering into illicit relationships. And they also acknowledge the validity of the kiddushin, which is the engagement act, and then the hupa, which is the canopy, which actually to them is the consecrator of the marriage. It kind of stands in the place of our ordaining minister, though modern marriages do have an ordained rabbi to perform a ceremony. The ceremony involves the hoopah. We looked at this last week. So to the Jew, 
You have to get married under this hoopah, the canopy. It symbolizes the husband bringing her to his place. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places that where I am, you may be also. Because when he would bring her home under Jewish Old Testament Jewish tradition and law, she enters into the home, they're officially married. Because think about it, there's no pastors in the Old Testament. There's only one priest, and he's not doing all the marriages in the hillside. This thing is tradition. It's done by the law of Moses as best they can. Her entering in also symbolizes the fact that she's now submitted to his authority. This still holds true to this day. This is why women don't pursue men. Women don't pursue men. The reason women would pursue men is because they have fear in their heart, and they want to control things. They can't trust God to bring them the right man, so they have to go on the prowl to make sure they can control who's after them. The problem is, you bring that into marriage, when do you turn that thing off, sweetie? When do you turn the control off? When do you control the dominance off? You, sweetie, go under his authority. He will never be under your authority. The hoopah represents the husband's authority. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place. That's a marriage terminology. That where I am, you will be. That means, honey, you're coming home with me. And symbolically, what it means is you're under my authority. That's my canopy. You enter it, you're under my authority. She leaves her daddy's hoopah, her daddy's canopy, and goes under her husband's. This is why women don't pursue men. This is why women don't ask men out. They don't ask men over. They don't hit men up. That's weird. It's feminist. It's fear-based. It's control-based. It's secular. It's not biblical. Because when will you turn that off? Men, if she's hitting you up, walk away. Run away. Just run. Run, 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 run. When you, man, get uh, hungry enough to be married, you'll go pursue someone. Ladies, don't pursue anybody. You don't want a guy you got to breathe life into from the first date. That's exhausting. And remember, we quoted the Talmud last week. Why does he pursue her and not her him? Because Adam lost the rib, and he that has lost the possession goes and seeks. She lost nothing. So why would she go seek unless what she lost was a daddy? And now she's looking for a daddy issue to be resolved. And this is why we take singlehood and we resolve daddy issues. So, girls, hear me again. You don't pursue guys. You don't pursue guys. You don't text. You don't do that goofiness. You let him pursue you. I don't care how feminist you think you may want to be. It's not going to go well. If you have to like nudge him with a stick to ask you out, you're going to be nudging him with a stick to go get a job. You're going to be nudging him with a stick to clean after himself. You're going to be nudging him with a stick to help around the house. You're going to be nudging him with a stick for plans. You're going to be nudging him with a stick to have what we do next. Nudging him with a stick to help with the kids and nudging him with a stick to pay the mortgage. It's really good preaching. Then you'll be nudging him with a stick to sign those divorce papers. <laughs> the ceremony involves the hoopah or the canopy. Some sects within Judaism has multiple sects like Christianity does. They incorporate a tailet or a shawl. Uh, you see the shawl there on the man. That's another extension of the canopy concept so that when they're finally done with their vows, they aren't just under the canopy. He will then take that shawl and put it around her like right there. And that is the consecrating and the solemnizing of the marriage. They are now officially married. That's the equivalent of the pastor saying, I now pronounce you by the authority of Jesus Christ. I pronounce you husband and wife. That's what makes it a sacrament. It is a ritual that now makes power available. So the Jews, 
They realize it with that talent, that canopy. It means she's under his authority. And if that freaks you out, you need to read 1 Peter 3, where it says the holy women are not afraid. They trust in their God and they call their husband Lord. That is, they submit to his authority. I ain't ever going to do that. Fine, die single. It's a really easy solution. And buy some cats. Because you're going to have to have something to channel your affection on. Cats or dogs or, I don't know, collect thimbles. <laughs> Things that old maids do. We are cons- uh, the, talent, the, the hoopah or the talent are considered to be the final step of the ceremony and actually act the actual act that solemnizes the marriage covenant because it symbolizes the woman coming underneath her husband's covering and authority. So I add again, we're going to hit it again. Women, quit throwing yourselves at men. You're not cheap. Quit acting like you're desperate. Quit throwing yourselves at men. Quit throwing yourselves at men. Quit throwing yourselves at men. It makes you look desperate and needy. If you have to talk him into liking you, you'll always have to talk him into leading your marriage. A true woman of God waits on her God to send her the man he has prepared because the rest of her life she'll have to trust God and accept the authority of her husband. The Jews eventually cheapen marriage by finding any and every reason to put away their wives. Interestingly enough, the Talmud uses the list of priesthood disqualifiers as reasons to put away a betrothed wife. But this also means they viewed the marital qualifications and institution of marriage on par with the priesthood. Go with me uh, back there on the projector. Turn with me. Let's go to Leviticus 21. You want to turn your Bible. Leviticus 21. I want us to pause and consider the concept. And again, I'm just teaching right now because I've got to get our estimation of marriage higher. If you esteem what you've got, you're not going to just throw it away. Coming back to my Timex watch, 1959. I used to know the name of the model. I sent it off to be repaired. They did not repair it up to my standard. I paid about $200 to have it repaired. It's not working like I need it to work. I'm going to spend as much as another $500 if that's what it takes to fix this watch because I know what it's worth. I'm not discarding it because I can only wind it and not set it. They've done something to the crown that's affecting the gears and the internal mechanism. I'm not discarding it like some of you do your marriages. I know what that watch is because somebody taught me. It sits in my drawer waiting for my attention and an extra couple hundred bucks to find the right watchmaker to make that thing and restore it up. I watch these YouTube videos. If they can restore a 100-year-old Rolex up to modern day, they can do a Timex. I have to redeem our eyes, in our eyes, our marriage, so you don't quit and you don't get so easily offended and you don't just go file divorce papers because you had a rough month. And how much of that rough month was your fault too? It is good preaching. Leviticus 21, New Living Translation, starting verse 16. Beginning in verse 16. Let's read the disqualifiers for the priesthood, but consider this that they viewed marriage on par with being ready for the priesthood. And that's what I want us to take away from this. The Jews, if they're looking to the Levitical disqualifiers for the priesthood, also lets us know they think marriage is just as sacred as the priesthood. Now let's, let's apply it to ministry. Do we just let anybody go into the ministry? Is ordination a big deal? Do they have to qualify? Do they have to be prepared? Is it a sacred thing? Is ordination a sacrament? Then why, why do we treat marriage as anything less? 
than ministry because a husband is a ministry. Being a wife is a ministry. And folks just want to get married, not because they want ministry, but because they're lonely or lusty. So consider again, I'm going to say it again, the Jews seemed to view the marriage covenant on par with the priesthood, which is the only reason they would look to the priestly disqualifiers as a reason to get out of a betrothal. So let's read this list because it's a little comical and you could use a little bit of brevity right now. Then the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to Aaron and all future generations. None of your descendants who has any defect will qualify to offer food to his God. So they're looking for a secular way or a, a carnal way to get rid of a, a betrothed woman. Verse 18, no one who has a defect qualifies whether he is blind, lame, disfigured, deformed, has a broken foot or arm, is hunchbacked or dwarfed, or has a defective eye or skin sores or scabs or damaged testicles. No descendant of Aaron who has a defect may approach the altar to present special gifts to the Lord. Since he has a defect, he may not approach the altar to offer food to his God. However, he may eat from the food offered to God, including the holy things and the most holy offerings." Yet, because of his physical defect, he may not enter the room behind the inner curtain or approach the altar, for this would defile my holy places. I am the Lord who makes them holy. So the priests who were defective in their health could not be a high priest. This reflects the perfect lamb without spot or blemish, which is the symbolism of it. It's not that God hates dwarfs or blind people. There are other laws that protect those folks. But the Jews in the Talmudic area era, excuse me, use that as an excuse to put away wives. This became an issue that Jesus had to resolve when he said, I tell you, if you put away a wife for any other reason except for adultery, you commit adultery. He's cleaning up what I'm about to read to you because they're looking for ways to get out of marriage. They became very carnal so let me read this out of the Talmud and just bear with me. There's a little bit of embarrassing speech here, but this is, this is 2,000 years old. What are the physical blemishes that cause a woman to be deemed unfit as a wife? All the physical blemishes that cause a priest to be deemed unfit for the service in the temple cause a woman to be deemed unfit as well. In Hilkot Biat HaMikdash, all the blemishes affecting the priests are explained. In addition, there are other blemishes that cause women to be deemed unfit. These include foul body odor. So, thank God you're not Jewish. Excessive sweating. <laughs> okay, now I got to change gears and I got to read this straight because you guys are going to chuckle enough for me. All right. <laughs> Hold on, let me get it out because I'm, I'm reading ahead going, I can't believe this is 2,000 years old. Hold on, let me put on the adult mind here. I'm only reading this because you need a little bit of levity right now and because I want you to understand the Jews viewed marriage on par with the priesthood. And we don't. We can look at somebody and say they're not ready for ministry. Why can't we look at somebody and say they're not ready for marriage? Well, that's controlling. It's not when it's considered ministry. Both are covenants. Both are sacraments. Both require ordination. Both step into an office. Both are expected to build the kingdom. All right, so back to this list. 
So everything we just read about the priests apply to women, and you can see why Jesus is furious because he steps on the scene, and they're just divorcing women for all these superficial reasons. And that's why he says, if you divorce for any other reason but adultery, you're an adulterer. So going back to what he's probably addressing, all right, excessive body odor, excessive sweating, foul breath, <laughs> deep voice, <laughs> breasts of abnormal size, being more than a hand's breadth larger than those of other women, a distance of more than a hand's breadth between one breast and the other, a scar in the place where she was bit by a dog, and a birthmark on her forehead. This includes even a birthmark that is very small, even if it is close to her hairline, and even if there are no hairs growing from it. <laughs> this is the birthmark that is mentioned as, disqual as a disqualifying factor for a woman and not for a priest. If, however, a birthmark has facial hair growing from it, or if it is as large as an isar, which I think is a coin, even with no hairs growing from it, it is a disqualifying blemish both for priests and for women. So you can understand this 2,000 years old. Jesus, Jesus is on the scene and says, you've heard it was written. If you divorce your wife, you have to give her a bill of divorcement. And these would be the reasons why. The school of Hillel even said, if you don't like the way she cooked breakfast, you can divorce her. Good old Southern mama says, if you don't like it, go hungry. And the frying pan says, I dare you to go see the lawyer. So we have come a long way, baby. Jesus says, if you divorce for any reason except adultery, you're an adulterer. And they knew that was punishable by death. So this is some of the stuff Jesus is fixing. But again, humor aside, because I read that list and I chuckle. Like, we're judging people for birthmarks? Hairy ones? My wife, I read it to her the other day. She said, how would they not know? I said, honey, they put a veil. They wore a veil over their face. And then that veil is revealed. And the, for the Jews, the veil represents... <laughs> I'm sorry. I read the entire... Well, not the entire. I probably read 80% of the Kedushin writing of the Talmud, which is like, oh, my Lord, is this ever going to end? So it explains a lot. But he says, we wear a veil. Why do we wear a veil? Because they always ask questions and answers. Because it symbolizes that though we appreciate your outward beauty, your inward beauty is of more importance to us. Until we lift the veil and realize you have foul breath, you excessively sweat, and you have a hairy birthmark on your face. And now we're done. I want my goats back. <laughs> All right, let me finish up here. Jesus. Do we view marriage with the same honor and responsibility as the priesthood? Do we view preparation for marriage as a priestly calling? We've never been taught to. We've, it's never crossed our mind to view marriage as a sacrament because we're not Catholic. It's never crossed our mind to view marriage as, as a ministry. So we don't prepare for it like a priest would or a missionary would or a pastor would. But anybody who's had marital problems knows, I wish I had been better prepared. I wish I knew how to do this. I wish I knew how not to quit. Preachers quit their church. They divorce their churches all the time because they're not prepared to handle it. And typically it's because the church doesn't want to come under the, the pastor's canopy. And so they make it hard on the priest. Priests were publicly ordained and then lived their appointment out in the public eye. Our marriages should be a time of celebration and public confirmation where we are publicly ordained and then live our marriages out in front of everyone. Now think about this. In our nation, even the preacher has traditionally asked, 
Does anyone have a reason why these two should not be joined together in holy matrimony? Speak now. Ever been to a wedding like that? Because they wanted to give opportunity for a father or a mother or someone, an ex-boyfriend, ex-husband, stand up and say, I do, Reverend. She's got three children she abandoned two states over. We wouldn't dare do that anymore. We might ruin their Instagram moment. But we might save a marriage. Do you realize how much our independence has made us lawless and narcissistic? And we don't want any help unless we control the help. Our wedding ceremonies should honor God Almighty first and foremost. We should honor the creator of marriage, the pattern of our future espousal covenant. And then it can honor and celebrate our beloved spouse. So let me read you one last passage, and then I'm going to give you four ingredients to an anointed marriage, and we'll be done. I'm a little over time, but you're fine. You're not going anywhere. You just spent time with family, and you said, thank God that's not my family, except on holidays and weekends. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. Let's talk about the Lamb's bride real quick. Two verses real quick, then I'm going to give you four points. We're done. If you listen quickly, take notes fast. We can be done in five minutes. Revelation 21, verse 2, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride. Brides need to be taking their singlehood to prepare themselves. Not just prepared for her wedding day, but the preparation for her wedding day is years in advance. It isn't just losing weight the last three months. That's the only preparation this narcissistic society knows. And that's fine, but you know you're never going to be that low again. So that wedding weight loss is a facade. I know my people's preparation ought to be much deeper than just 20 pounds of weight loss to get into that dress. It ought to be your soul. It ought to be your maturity. It ought to be your stability. It ought to be your hunger for your God and your holiness. She's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then jump over. Uh... Verse 9, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now, to me, this is comical, because one of the angels who has the seven last plagues, he's on his way to destroy humanity. He's like, You got a second? Let me show you the bride. Can we, can we set those plagues down? I mean, what happens if you trip and accidentally spill those plagues? Are we going to ruin the wedding? I got him. Come on with me. Let's go over here and... He says, let me show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. You shouldn't get married till you have the glory of God on you. And her light, you ought to be lit, not depressed, not moody, not selfish, not lonely. Have your own light was likened to a stone, most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, to be honest, jasper is not clear as crystal, so I don't know what rock they're talking about, but it ain't jasper. And that is why I can't read the Bible as a geologist, because it's horrible. It's all, there's no diamonds in the Old Testament. They don't even know what diamonds were. You couldn't mess with them. They had a hardness of 47. They couldn't work with them. They're just making this stuff up. So anyway, that's my geologic angst. goes on to say that her white garments are the righteousness of the saints. You don't get married till you have your own light. You don't get married till you have your own glory. You don't get married till you have your own righteousness. If you're looking for a marriage to fix you, you're going to have a divorce very quickly. 
You come into marriage whole. You come into marriage fixed. You come into marriage mature. You come into marriage anointed and glorified and stable. Otherwise, you're going to make somebody else miserable. So, four ingredients to an anointed marriage, because i got to help the, uh, the married folks. We've harped on the single folks here for a little bit. Going back to Ephesians 5, 31, 32, 33. Four ingredients to an anointed marriage. Ephesians 5, 31, 32, 33. Number one, leave father and mother. It gives us four steps in these three verses. Therefore shall man leave his father and mother. Parents can ruin a relationship. You need to be careful how your friendship is with your adult children. I have seen parents way too chummy with kids. And I would also add this. I'll give you my judgment. Disagree if you want. Your mom shouldn't be your only friend. Your mom shouldn't be your only friend. Your mom shouldn't be your best friend. That's weird. That's weird. That's weird. You should have friends outside your mom and dad. That's normal. That's normal. If you spend all your time with your mom as a woman, that's weird. Church, do you agree? All right. So there, if you disagree with me, everybody else thinks you're weird. Also, as a man, your dad shouldn't be your only friend. I get it. Have a dad. That, thank God you can have a dad as a friend, but you should have other men your age that you can fellowship with. So you got to be careful. The Bible says, leave father and mother. Leave. That means they're no longer your best friend. You're no longer nursing. You're no longer fellowshipping all the time. That gets weird. It hurts marriages. It hurts friendships. It's weird. And why does mom feed this? Why does dad feed this? Something's not right there. It's not biblically balanced. Would to God we could all have great relationships with our moms and dads. It's not always possible. But the other ditch is it's the only friend you have. And that's weird. Number two, be joined to your spouse. Leave mother and father and be joined. The word in the Greek and the Hebrew means to stick like glue. You're glued together, which means if you get torn apart, there's chunks missing. Your spouse wants to feel like they are number one in your life. Don't provoke your spouse to jealousy. So leave mom and dad and you stick like glue to your spouse. Never feel like, never make your spouse feel like they're number two. Never make your, is that right, honey? Never make your spouse feel like she's number two. Now, I've done that, unfortunately, many times with the church. You, church, have been my mistress. And it's taken 16 years to try to figure out how to get you as a booger off my finger. Because I have learned they'll always be your problem. And my wife will always take the hit. And usually by the time you bring me the problem, it's not fixable. So why would I give you my date night? Why would I give you my weekend getaway? Why would I give you my breakfast? And I'm still not good at it. I still answer those stupid phone calls and those stupid texts. <laughs> and my wife has learned to grow up a little bit and realize this is just what we're called to do. I don't think, um, I serenade her with sheep bang in the background. Huh. <laughs> She's a very gracious woman to me. It is definitely the pastoral anointing because I don't like you guys that much. <laughs> I love you, but I don't like you that much. <laughs> and it isn't but the calling that, that hearkens and says, no, you got to help them. I don't want to help them, Lord. They don't listen to my sermons. They ridicule me. They slander me behind my back. Now it's all imploding on them and they want me to fix it. Now I can't fix it. It's beyond fixing. They just want to ruin my weekend. 
At least hear them out. I don't want to hear them out. You know what they're saying. You hear them out. <laughs> well, hear them out so you can make a Sunday morning sermon for them. They won't come. They'll skip and leave early. I'm telling you, God is way more merciful than the preacher. Don't provoke your spouse to jealousy. Make sure your spouse feels number one in your life, and you need to have conversations with them that let you know what that looks like to them. Everybody has different needs. Love your wife. That's what the final commandment is for the man. Love your wife. Love her like Christ loves the church. This will require daily help from Jesus. Love her like Christ loves the church. Men, you and I both know we're going to have to say, God, help me. I don't know how to love her like you love me. I don't know if I'm capable of loving her like you love me. But if he commands it, you can do it. It requires us to grow. And then finally, women, it says you are to respect. That is to venerate your husband. It's a command. Wives, respect your husbands. Trust, adore, and give thanks for your husband like the Holy Church does Jesus. This also will require daily help from the head of the church, Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you always obey him. If he's doing sinful things, you don't have to obey him, but you can still respect him. Say, honey, I love you. With all due respect, I'm not buying your beer. I'm not buying your cigarettes, and I'm not watching porn with you. Give me something more to respect. So four things real quick. Leave mom and dad. Stick like glue to your spouse. Love your wife as Christ loves the church. And respect your husband as the church does Christ. Four simple ingredients to an anointed marriage. And I think if I said nothing else profound other than dwarves and hairy birthmarks this morning, it would be that if we could view marriage as a priestly calling and line up those parallels, then you realize you're probably not ready for marriage. And maybe I make a chart for next Sunday. We, we see all the parallels between ministry and marriage. And if we wouldn't flippantly ordain people into the ministry, we're not going to flippantly do marriage ceremonies. Amen.